Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Tonight is the show's first true crime night. We'll be discussing the Carrie Culberson case in Blanchester, Ohio, and the Rena Vert case in Saanich, British Columbia, up in Canada. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Thank you for joining me on this fifth mid-season show. This is the halfway point between season one. So we have five more episodes and I'll be taking a little break. And we'll come back and we'll do a season two. Uh, Tonight is the first, what I'm going to call, true crime night. I'm going to try to do maybe like one of these a season. Maybe the the mid-season show will be a good place for it. Um, it's not my forte. I really like the doing the kind of creepier, ooky, spooky aliens and Bigfoot and all that. But I think that every once in a while, a show like this is important because of of the content of the cases I'm going to discuss. They both have 
reasons, I think, why they need to be talked about. One is not so much an unsolved case, but a case that has some loose ends that if those loose ends were ever tied up, the family of the victim would be would would finally be able to get uh, some much needed closure from it. And the other case had some good come from the tragedy that ensued. And I think that's what's important about true crime. It's not about the victimizer. It's about the victims. And it's about what comes from their stories and the changes for better that can occur. Before we get into the main meat of the show, I want to take a little bit of time and just really, once again, thank everyone for listening. Thank everyone for supporting the show. There's been a very large increase in uh, downloads over the past couple of weeks. A couple of you out there have purchased some merchandise, which I'm very thankful for. Thank you. You know who you are. And the show rolls on, and every week it gets a little bit bigger, and every week it gets a little more exciting, a little more fun to do. And really, that's it, I guess. Yeah, another short intro, not a huge one. Before we get into our stories tonight, I'm of course going to play a promo from another podcast. And just this being the first true crime night, we're going to listen to a promo from the excellent Going West podcast. So please give a listen to the promo, give them some time, and a listen, if you can. What's going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And we're from Going West. A true crime podcast where we discuss various murders, disappearances, and unsolved crimes. We release new episodes every Monday, and each week we have a different case to dive into. You can find us over on Instagram at Going West Podcast. And on Twitter at Going West Pod. Listen to some of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast, where you can get exclusive bonus ad-free episodes every month. If you're looking for a new true crime binge, check out Going West. For everybody out there in the world, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio. And we are back for the first of our two stories tonight. In the first one, we are discussing the Carrie Culberson case from Blanchester, Ohio. This is one of those rare murder convictions that they were able to obtain without ever finding any remains. And that's that's why I meant by this isn't really quote-unquote, a cold case. It's thoroughly solved, and I think everyone thinks they got the right guy. But there's just some loose ends that need tied up. There's just, a, there's just some closure that isn't there that I think really needs to be there. So let's, let's get into it. On Wednesday, August 28th, 1996, 22-year-old Clarissa Ann Culberson, known as Carrie, returned home from a volleyball game around 11.30 p.m. Shortly after that, Carrie and her red Honda CRX would vanish, never to be seen again. Deborah, Carrie's mother, would wake up on the morning of the 29th 
to find no trace of her daughter. She would go on to say that her bed had not been disturbed, which meant she had probably didn't sleep in it that night. Alarmed by this, Deborah began contacting Carrie's friends in an attempt to locate her daughter. Carrie's friends had no idea where she could have gone. Carrie's mother then contacted Carrie's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Vincent Doan. She called Doan three times, asking when was the last time he saw Carrie, and he would change his story three separate times. Doan was reportedly very abusive towards Carrie. After years of both verbal and physical abuse, Carrie would finally press assault charges when, on July 28th of 1996, Doan threw a space heater at her. The heater hit her in the head, resulting in stitches. Days after Carrie's disappearance, witnesses were starting to come forward saying they saw Vincent and Carrie arguing outside of her home, as well as Doan being spotted at several places around town. And what I'm going to go into now is just a, a timeline of events of what happened that night and into the next day. At around 11.30, neighbor Kim Lannard sees a CRX driving slowly down Bourbon Street with its lights off. And Bourbon Street is the, uh, the street that Carrie lived on. This was odd, as Carrie was 22 and had no curfew. It seems like the type of behavior of someone trying to sneak out. If I may speculate a bit, I think Carrie was probably trying to sneak home so that Doan wouldn't catch wind that she was on her way home or was going to be home. It must be noted at this time that Vincent Doan showed up twice to the volleyball game, engaging in arguments both times. Billy Joe Brown would testify that she saw Doan chase Culberson down and yell obscenities at her and attempt to punch her in the face. Mrs. Brown then went and told her husband what was going on. By the time she returned to her kitchen window, she hears tires squealing. No sign of Doan, Culberson, or her red 1989 Honda CRX. This would be around 12.30 a.m. Then, at around 1 in the morning, Doan stops by the home of Jeff and Jennifer Warren. He uses their phone to call his father to, to tell him the truck he was driving had run out of gas. Doan wants to use their phone because the payphone on the street is apparently out of order. I would like to point out that Doan drove a black Ford Mustang, but now for some reason he needs a truck at 1 in the morning. And he never, the truck uh, apparently was out of gas because he never ended up using it for anything that night. He used his car. At 3.15, Lori Baker, who is the ex-wife of Vincent's half-brother Terry Baker, is awoken by Doan knocking on the door. Lori would testify that Doan was only wearing a pair of jeans with no shirt, shoes, or socks and had what appeared to be blood smeared on his chest, arms, and pants. Vicky Watkins... Lori's twin sister would also see Doan at the door. She knew it was him by his Grim Reaper tattoo on his shoulder. She also said he had blood on him. At 3.45 a.m., Lori sees Vincent and Terry leave the resident, their residence on Supinger Street after Doan showers. The two men are seen leaving with a gun, several large garbage bags, and they drive away into the night. Hours later, at 6 in the morning, both men return to the Baker house covered in blood. Lori is instructed to wash the bloody clothing. At around 6.30 a.m., Doan leaves for work in his Ford Mustang. And the Mustang is known around town for its loud exhaust. So they always knew when Doan was coming or going because everyone could hear him. 11 a.m., Vincent calls the nail salon that Carrie works at. He says he is on his lunch break and just wanted to say hi. However, his time card shows he clocked out at 7.40 a.m. 
and never returned. Then, around 11.30, Lori Baker sees Vincent. He asks to borrow her car because someone, who he does not name, wants to look at his car for possible purchase. He wants to clean it up before they get there. Somewhere between 12.30 and 1 p.m., Don asks Robert Shelton if he has any car ramps. Shelton says he doesn't, but he does know someone with a rollback truck. Don allegedly states he doesn't want anybody else to know what is going on. Uh, a little more about Vincent Doan. He met Carrie while he was incarcerated for attempted murder charges against his best friend, who he shot in the face. After he was out of jail, the two started dating. After Carrie's disappearance, Doan began dating and moved in with Shannon Hodson, who looked so much like Carrie that she was mistaken for her around town after Carrie disappeared. She wasn't even allowed in the courtroom during Doan's trial because the judge or whomever thought it would be too eerie of a resemblance for the people in the courtroom. Doan would be arrested for murder along with Terry Baker, Doan's father, and Lawrence Baker, who were all accused of destroying evidence. Doan would go on trial for murder without a body, which as I said earlier, is exceptionally rare. Despite the defense team arguing that Lori, who had dated Doan in the past, was nothing but a jilted lover and was trying to get Vincent in trouble, Doan would be found guilty of Carrie's murder and sentenced to life without parole. But that would not be the end of it. Later, Blanchester Police Chief Richard Payton was charged as well. The police were going to search a junkyard pond believed to be where Carrie's remains were. He did not have the site secured for the night, and when they emptied the pond the next morning, they found fresh footprints in the mud and a large disturbed spot where something had been removed. And I read somewhere, I couldn't, like, substantiate it, that he, that the the police chief might have actually told Doan's family what they were planning to do the next day, which is a huge no-no. You don't tell your prime suspect's family um, exactly what you're planning to find evidence against him. Because of this, the Culberson family would go on to win a civil suit against the city of Blanchester. Due to the police's mishandling of the case, the family would never get the evidence they needed to lay their daughter to rest. It also would not be the last time Vincent Doan would be in the news. In 2013, while participating in a prison dog training program, he would be attacked by one of the dogs. The dog tore a huge chunk off of his face, leaving him permanently disfigured. To this day, neither Carrie or her red Honda CRX have ever been found. If anyone out there has any info that may lead to recovering her remains or the car, they can contact the Brown County Sheriff at 937-378-4555. You may also be able to send an email to Carrie's family at dcolberson127 at hotmail.com. And I'm going to put uh, that information in the show notes. It'll be on the website under episodes for episode 5. I also linked heavily to the website dedicated to Carrie. You'll find uh, more information on the case. You'll find a lot of pictures. It's an older website, but I'm pretty sure as far as the information on it, such as the phone number and everything, everything's still good. So if anyone, I mean, it's a long shot, but, you know, the more people that know about this, 
the better the odds that one day someone's going to come forward with some useful information and the Colbertson family can finally get that closure that I think they so probably desperately need. And that is our first story. We're going to go on now uh, to Saanich, British Columbia. I think I'm saying that right. Saanich? Saanich? It's got two A's in it. Uh, up in Canada. And we're going to talk about Rena Verk. Before I get into the case of Rena, I want to talk about how I came about it. I decided to do this story uh, way back when because someone on a Facebook group that I belong to said that no one's covered it in a while. She can't find any big podcast about it. And I told her, well, I have a show and I'm getting ready to do, you know, this episode. So I'll go ahead and do it. And then when I started looking into the case, I noticed that Rena and I have the same birthday. And not just the same birthday, but the same birth year. So because of that, I really wanted to share her story. Rena Verk was a shy 14-year-old girl who was born in Saanich, British Columbia in Canada. On November 17, 1997, she would be murdered by her peers in the same town in which she was born. Rena could have been considered a troubled youth. Through most of her schooling, she was bullied feverishly, mostly because she was different than her peers. She was of Indian descent, tall for her age, and had broad shoulders and coarse hair. When she hit her teenage years, Rena started to lash out at her parents, most notably accusing her dad of sexual abuse. These accusations were completely false. The reason she accused her father of these things was she heard it was the easiest way to get into a foster home, which she wanted so she could ex escape her family life. Her parents weren't abusive or anything like that. There's no evidence to corroborate any of those claims. She just didn't want, you know, she thought, oh, if I can get into a foster home, I won't have to do anything. This did indeed work. Her father was arrested and placed in prison for a week, and Rena was put in the foster care. However, foster life wasn't all it was cracked up to be. She still had a curfew, which she hated, and now she had to do chores. She would soon admit to her false accusations, and she would apologize. While she was in the foster home, she did meet two girls, who she considered to be friends. Uh, their names are protected under Canada law, so I'm not going to use them here. I'm going to use an alias, except for the two, the two that got convicted. You can, their names are out there. When Rena returned home, things got a little better for a little while. Then the family moved and she started a new school. At first, Rena and her family thought this new environment would be good for her. However, the bullying would not end and it possibly got even worse. She did make a few friends, or at least what she thought were her friends. One of these two people, I'll call Joe, that Rena met at the foster home was friends with a girl named Kelly Ellard. Joe and Kelly shared many interests such as serial killers, gangster rap, and the mob. Things would start to go sour after Rena allegedly stole Joe's notebook, containing all of her contacts. Rena then began calling boys from the notebook, telling them things like Joe's eyebrows were fake, that Joe had AIDS, 
and she wasn't as pretty as she looked. This would be the match that would start the fire. On the night of November 17, 1997, a Russian satellite was going to be breaking up in the night sky. A bunch of teenagers had gathered behind Shoreline School to watch the show, including Rena, Kelly, and Joe. Like most groups of teenagers, they soon became loud and unruly. The cops were called and soon showed up, breaking up the party. The teens would disperse, and most of them would end up under the Craig Flower Bridge. There, surrounded by a large group of people, Kelly Elder put a cigarette out on Rena's forehead, burning her. Then Elder and Joe began beating her. As Rena yelled for them to stop and screamed that she was sorry, seven other teenagers would join in, all of them girls. They would become known as the Shoreline Six, as well as a boy named Warren Golotsky. The beating went on for minutes, with onlookers staring the entire time before a young kickboxer yelled for them to stop. Eventually they did, and for the second time that night, the teens scattered into the darkness. Rena stumbled away from the scene along the saltwater inlet the locals called the Gorge. Rena wasn't alone. She was being followed by Kelly and Warren, and there, down by the water, they would beat her again. It would take eight days for her body to be found in the water, and two days after that, Dr. Laura Gray, the coroner, concluded that she had passed away due to drowning. Of course, it's hard for a large group of people, especially young people, to keep a secret for too long, and soon Kelly Ellard, Warren Glowski, and the Shoreline Six would face their time in court. On June 2nd, 1999, Glowatsky would be found guilty of second-degree murder. Glowatsky is sent into life in prison with no chance of parole for up to seven years. He would later apologize to the Virk family, an apology that they would accept. Ellard's road through the justice system would be a different story. In her first trial, she would be convicted, but the judge would hand down the lightest sentence possible, stating her to love of animals as being one of the causes for it. She would go on trial for a second time after she turned 21. The reason for the second trial, the court claims, was because of misleading interrogation when she was a minor. But now that she's 21, they can do it again. The second trial ends in a deadlocked jury and was declared a mistrial. She would go to court again for a third time and again convicted of murder for Rena Verk. However, that conviction would be overturned to the judge giving erroneous instructions to the jury over testimony. A fourth trial was in order and this one stuck. She was convicted of second degree murder and gets life in prison with no option for parole until after seven years. So she got the same thing that uh, Warren got. Kelly Ellard is currently on day parole in part because she got pregnant in prison. She also changed her name to Carrie Marie Sim. Tragically, Rena's mother would be killed in an accident in 2018. She was a staunch anti-bullying advocate. Rena's tragedy has become a beacon of change, however, sparking youth violence and anti-bullying initiatives, as well as a research center at the University of Victoria. And that's really why I wanted to tell her story, it was in part because of the birthday thing that kind of touched me, but the fact that it brought so much attention to bullying and, you know, violence among young adults and all this, all this stuff. I mean, a lot of us have been victims of bullying, probably most of us, 
And this is what it can lead to. This is what can happen when it gets out of hand, when it goes unchecked, when someone doesn't have the support they need or the resources to help quell the bullying. And that is the story of Rena Verk. We're going to take a little musical break here and we're going to come back with local headlines. And we're back. And like always, I've got a few local headlines to read out. This first one is from uh, Courier and Press. This is from Evansville, Indiana, from the Evansville Courier and Press, uh, written by John Webb. 
a dead body is being found every 13 days in the Evansville area. Every 13 days. On average, that's how often a dead body has been found in the Evansville area since early March. The latest was a grisly discovery in a remote, in remote Warwick County where authorities uncovered the badly burned body of 32-year-old Valerie Ruark. The cases range from homicides to complete mysteries. Here are the details on the four people discovered. Brooke Naylor. Brooke Naylor, a 20-year-old Southern Illinois woman, vanished on March 3rd after failing to show up for a shift at Morello's Restaurant and Catering in Harrisburg. That was unlike her, friends told the Southern Illinoisian, and soon search parties swarmed to the far reaches of the area in a desperate search for the quirky, smart young woman. They eventually spotted her abandoned Chevy Malibu sitting along El Dorado Ridgeway blacktop between Illinois Route 142 and Illinois Route 1. Then, on March 8th, they found Brooke. Her body was discovered just past Pothole Lane in the remote Gallatin County. Coroner Tony Cox ruled that she died of exposure and hypothermia. No one knows why she was out there, but there were no reported signs of foul play. Vicki Lee Webb The 48-year-old Henderson, Kentucky woman was last seen on January 28th walking in the 100 block of Meadow Street. On March 10th, her remains were found across town, tucked in a wooded area near Tillman Bethel Road, not far from the Green River. The area had been recently flooded. No official cause of death has been released. According to a report from 14 News, Webb was a constant fixture at the area auctions and quickly made friends wherever she went. Even today, it just don't seem real, a friend told the TV station. Stephen Flowers The 1995 green Chevy truck had been stranded in the mud for days. A person living near Vanderbilt County River Bottoms, just off South Weinbach Avenue, reported it to law enforcement. Soon, Evansville police learned the truck was connected to a man they'd been searching for. Stephen Flowers, 70, was reported missing on March 19th. His family told police they'd last heard of him in January. He was found on April 15th, not far from his truck. Police said there were no signs of foul play. Vanderbilt County Coroner Steve Lockyer told the Corian Press that because of the range of tests needed, it will likely be several weeks before he can release a cause of death. And Valerie Ruark. When she put her mind somewhere, it stuck. Friend Amber Lynn told the Courier Press on Tuesday, a great friend, did a lot for anyone and everyone. The 32-year-old Boonville mother, also known as Valerie Cullen, was found near Stephen Hills and Waston Roads in far-flung Warwick County on Friday afternoon, according to sheriff's deputies, her body had been set on fire. She was identified on Tuesday. According to the release from Warwick County Sheriff's Office, her death will be treated as a possible murder case. And our next one here is American Airlines pilot arrested in 2015 triple murder by Shelby Lynn Erdman from the Cox Media Group, which also owns the papers around here, I believe. Louisville, Kentucky. A pilot with an American Airlines subsidy was arrested early Saturday morning at Louisville Muhammad Ali International Airport on murder charges, according to news reports. 
Kristen Richard Martin, 51, was indicted by a grand jury Friday in, triple, in a triple homicide in 2015 in Christian County, Kentucky, according to the WDRB-TV. He's facing three counts of murders, a count of arson, and a count of attempted arson, among other charges. Investigations, I'm sorry, investigators said Martin killed three people, identified as Calvin Phillips, his wife, Pamela Phillips, and another man, Edward Danceru. Sometime around November 15th, WDRB reported, Phillips was found shot to death in his home. Pamela Phillips and Desiru were found dead in a burned-out car a few miles away. Authorities allege that Martin re- relocated from Christian County to North Carolina after the murders. He is a pilot for PSA Airlines, a subsidiary of American Airlines, and has been suspended pending the investigation. American Airlines official issues a statement on the Martin case that said in part that they were saddened by the allegations. We have an unwavering commitment to safety and security of our customers and team members and will provide any investigative assistance possible to law enforcement throughout their investigation, the statement said. And this last one is from uh, NBC52. It's a local affiliate, I believe. And the headline for this one reads, Man says Sasquatch attacked him with an axe. Kalmuth Falls, Oregon. A call came into Kalmuth County 911 dispatch late Wednesday afternoon from a caller claiming that a man was trying to kill him with an axe. The caller was not providing a lot of information, said Kalmuth County Deputy District Attorney Cole Chase, and was threatening rude and and abusive to the 911 dispatchers but the officer still responded quickly. Officer responded at high speed to the Chiliquin area. Deputies say Timothy Drennan told them that a Sasquatch was the one who attacked him. The defendant, Mr. Drennan, was combative, made threats, but ultimately was taken into custody without any physical incident, Chase said. The deputy DA says he can't comment on any evidence that may have been presented in court, though he added an important observation. Upon a subsequent investigation, there were no signs that a Sasquatch was present. Drennan is charged with misuse of 911 and initiating a false report. It doesn't appear as if though there's any issue of mental health concern here, Chase said. This was strictly intoxication. And that has been our local headlines for the week. We're going to finish out the show with a couple of listener stories. And tonight we have two listener stories. The first one is from Donald Def... Uh, I want to say Defley? I might be saying it wrong. And if I, I am, I apologize, man. But he sent me a couple of quick anecdotes about some of the things he's experienced living out in Virginia on Facebook last week. So this is, this is what he wrote me. Uh, Not as strange as Mothman or the Jersey Devil. The closest saying I can have to strange is if you look at the history. Can't remember the year, but I believe it was somewhere in 90. There was a meteor coming down, and I can see it from Chesterfield, and people could see it from Richmond, but it was going way too slowly. Everyone said, oh, it's a big UFO landing somewhere. And the only other things that I have as well, quite frankly, ghosts and stories that I've told up from family members. One being towards a fishing spot in Colonial Heights down by the White Bank picnic area. 
If you go past White Bank, there is a housing area known as Marin Windsurf. If you don't have the money, you can't live there type of housing. Rich people, supposedly. And this is only around dawn. You're supposed to see a young Native American warrior, and if the sun starts rising above the horizon, he disappears. Another thing, and my uncle told me this story, and told me never to do this because it freaked him out so much, and he didn't believe a ghost until then, supposedly. But there's an area of Jefferson Davis Highway where there was a lumberjack that if you cuss at him and throw fannies at him, I'm not sure what fannies are, that he will chase you. The problem is he cannot leave the spot, but his axe can, and it followed my uncle home, and in the middle of the night, the axe swung at him, and he never messed with the supernatural again. Then we have a quick one from my uh, buddy JP up in Piqua, Ohio. And I wanted to throw this on the show because I've lived around here my entire life, and I never knew this. But there is apparently an old decommissioned, not apparently, there is, an old decommissioned nuclear power plant up in Piqua. Uh, It's called the Piqua Nuclear Power Plant. It was a 45.5 megawatt facility that was built on the south end of Piqua in 1963. It was proposed on February 1st, 1956, along with six other small plants. The plant was in operation until 1966, when due to problems with the control rods, it was decommissioned. It is now a city facility. I'm pretty sure it's part of the water treatment facility up there. And can be seen from the bike path. And that is true. Like, if you are on the bike path and you're walking up to Piqua, or you're coming back, there is a... a dome-like building and a couple of other buildings. I took some pictures. They will be on STS Cast under episodes. Go to episode 5. You'll see a couple pictures I took of it. And a picture of the placard that's there on the trail that tells you all about it. I'm also going to link to a YouTube video that is the old kind of... I don't want to say newsreel because it was the 50s, but... You know, one of those old 50s kind of educational-like move you know kind of films that you see and they just talk about the power plant and what it is and what it's going to do and it's exactly like you think it is it's old it's grainy and has a man with a very grandiose voice talking very proudly about the nuclear power plant and that kind of orchestral very patriotic music in the background but it's an interesting video to sit down and watch and check out and i think that's going to do it for listener stories And that is a wrap for episode five. Uh, I apologize if I kind of rushed through a little bit. I feel like I did this one really quick, but I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just going to be one of those shorter episodes, but sometimes that's okay. Like I said, if you have a story, an experience, a local legend, stuff like that that you would like to share about your small town, please hit me up on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at STS cast for both of those. I'm most active on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram at STS.gram. No, I'm sorry. STScast.gram. That's the redhead stepchild. That's the one that I had to make a new name for because I couldn't get the other one. You can also go to STScast.com. You can scroll down to the bottom of the page. And at the bottom there is a an email form that you can fill out and you can tell me your experience. If you would, please rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, especially if it is iTunes, because that's the big one. That's the one that helps get the show notice. And the other thing that you can do 
that's free and that helps promote the show and helps get more people to listen to it is just tell a friend. Word of mouth is a powerful, powerful thing. One last time, I just want to thank everyone for listening and continuing to listen, and we'll have some really fun stuff coming up for the next episode of Small Town Secrets. Until then, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.